0: Welcome back to Podiatry Today Podcasts. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the Managing Editor of Podiatry Today. Today's DPM guest is going to share her experiences and practices with us surrounding dystrophic toenails. Dr. Nicole Deloro is a diplomat of the American Board of Podiatric Medicine and the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery. She's on the Board of Directors of the American Board of Podiatric Medicine and she practices in New York and New Jersey. She's also published throughout the podiatric literature, as well as an edition of Fitzpatrick Dermatology in General Medicine. Dr. Deloro, thank you so much for being with us today. So when a patient presents to you with a dystrophic or a malformed toenail, what are some history items that you make
1: sure to ask? So being in private practice, I pretty much encounter this on a day-to-day basis. And each person has to really be individually assessed in the sense that, you know, questions that I'd like to ask them are, you know, has there been any sort of trauma? And most people think of trauma as something, you know, dropping on the foot or stubbing the toe. And they don't necessarily realize that sometimes it's just the way the shoe is actually fitting. For instance, I even had a patient today who was telling me that she walked maybe 40 blocks in Manhattan. And she ended up getting some bruising underneath the toe. And she's like, I can't believe that happened. And I said, well, <laughs> you walked like multiple miles in your shoes. And apparently the toe was rubbing. So something as simple as that. I always ask a patient if they've had any sort of chemotherapy or radiation with cancer being so prevalent, these are things that most patients do get affected with in some way. And um, so it's good to know if they've had any of those types of treatments. And if there's any sort of underlying disorder, whether it's skin, um, autoimmune, uh, patients that have psoriasis, uh, for instance, those are patients that we'll see nail changes with. So those are pretty much the main questions that I'll ask them. And usually, with that, something comes up in the conversation that can then lead to you know how we're going to hone in on the physical exam. Well, speaking of the physical exam, when you move on to
0: that, what characteristics are you looking for specifically? So
1: we always assess to make sure the vascular status is intact. Uh, you know some patients that do have peripheral vascular disease, nails can be affected. Always look at the skin in general, you know, not just of the foot itself, but you know the lower leg and between the toes, um, because sometimes if there is some sort of skin involvement that may be relevant to the changes in the nail. I want to look at the nail plate itself. Is it discolored? Is it thickened? Uh, does the discoloration extend past the proximal nail fold? Is it lifting from the actual nail bed? Is it crumbly? So those are things that I'm mainly looking at and how many digits are actually being affected. I usually will also ask the patients to just physically show me the hands, not that I'm examining their hands, but just to see if there is involvement with the hands as well, because sometimes that can also help to kind of decipher uh, what else is going on. So once you've gathered all
0: that information, what are your next steps diagnostically?
1: I have become um, pretty consistent with always sending a nail sem- sample out. In private practice, we actually use Baco as our lab, and I think they do an excellent description of what's going on with the actual pathology. They, I order a PCR test with the biopsy, and what's great about it is not only do you get the histology on the report and you find out if there is uh, mycosis to the nail or if it's just trauma, but then they will also run it for the strain of fungus with this PCR. And that's great because that kind of leads me to determine what treatments I'm going to have. You know, it's not always, a dermatophyte that is causing the issue on the nail. A lot of times, I find that they come back with yeast, which is also very common, at least in my patient population. And more recently, the uh, the lab has also added terbinafine resistant testing, where they have uh, they run the specimen through all these mutations that they've found that can be um, resistant to the medication. So if oral medication is potentially a treatment, you'll know whether or not it's actually going to be effective. You know, a lot of times I think you get into the habit where, okay, it's fungus, um, I'm not gonna send the sample out. And I think that's something foolish. I think it's really worth taking the time to do that because it really helps you hone in on a treatment plan for the patient. You know, some of these patients that come in, they have said that they've already tried, you know, multiple other things that didn't work. And a lot of times I'll say to the patient, well, it may not even be fungus. So let's take the sample and let's send it out. I have had many patients, I even had one this week, that I said to her, it came back negative on all fronts. So it came back negative when they did the initial testing, came back negative when they ran it through to see the specific organisms. And she says, oh, wow. She says, I was using antifungals for you know two years thinking that's what it was. So I think it's definitely worth taking the time to send it. I, I will say that I've used other labs and I just find that testing is not as descriptive. And I do find that uh, BACO does give a great analysis to use.
0: So are there any other puzzle pieces that you try to put together when you're formulating your definitive diagnosis? A lot of
1: times you have to look at also the compliance of the patient's lifestyle. And if you're doing this testing and you're going to get an answer out of it, What is the possibility that they're going to go ahead with the treatment plan? And does it fit into their lifestyle? It doesn't really matter if you have the right diagnosis because they're not going to to be able to, to remedy the situation. So that's something that I like to put together. A lot of times also when I get the results of the testing, it can be a combination of things that have, um, that have arose on the report. So for instance, it can come back with positive dramatified involvement, but also positive for microtrauma. That's the case. I'll usually tell the patient that you know they may get improvement with whatever the treatment plan will be, but it may not be 100%. And that's a realistic conversation to have because sometimes people think that, you know, taking any sort of medication, whether it's a topical or an oral med, that is gonna cure the situation. So that's something that's important to note. And again, you know, with their lifestyle, are they someone who's involved with sports and they're going to be exposed to the same thing that potentially brought on the change to begin with? Um, or are they a runner? And they're going to be wearing, you know, a snug fit shoe because that's what they're comfortable with. And they're going to be running miles and miles, and it's just going to um, affect the toe. Do they have a deformity of the digit, like a hammer toe, where maybe the nail is actually abutting onto the floor or the shoe? You know, these are all things that I kind of like to think about when I'm I have the results of the testing to actually come up with a really personalized treatment plan for the patient.
0: So let's talk about those treatment plans. Um, So if you have a patient where you have definitively identified onychomycosis, what are some of your algorithms for uh, determining which treatment is going to fit the patient
1: best? Some patients will say that, you know, they've, they've seen a Lamisil commercial on the TV or they know of a friend or they took it 10 years ago. And they're resistant to even attempting to take the oral medication. So I usually will start the conversation with you know, there are topical treatments and there are oral treatments. And depending on how they answer me, the conversation can go in different directions. Um, if it's a very mild case, meaning that maybe it's not the entire digit that's involved, or maybe it's only one of the nails that are involved. Um, or they haven't had it for a very long time, I will always suggest to use the topical first. I've had success with a handful of them. Things like Jublia, they work great in my particular practice and my patient population. It seems to need a lot of authorizations for approval. And sometimes it gets approved and sometimes it doesn't. I've used other things such as Formula 7. Uh, There's another topical called Claris. I have patients who have been in Penlac, and with Penlac, you really have to be very d- diligent about good instructions for the patient because I find that, you know, I always tell them, put on a very thin coat, do that once a day for a week, take it off with acetone, buff the nail, and start over again. And I have them come in routinely, uh, for debridement because I just find that it, the lacquer leaves such a thicker film on the nail that unless you really sand that down, uh, the medicine just can't penetrate. Some patients that tell me, I'm not going to go ahead and apply something to my toes every day, or I want something that's natural um, or homeopathic in a sense, I will always advise them of a white vinegar soak where maybe you're mixing three-part vinegar to one part water just to dilute it a little bit. And you're soaking the feet for maybe 15, 20 minutes once a day. And I'll tell them, you know, get a toothbrush. Obviously not one that you're gonna use in your mouth. Uh, and you go ahead and kind of buff the nail, and let it air dry. I've seen that work really well. And recently I have used topical Lamisil cream where I have them apply it to the cuticle of the nail uh, at the proximal end. And I have them do that consistently, you know, once a day. And it's, it's slow, but it actually does work. And um, as long as they're consistent with any of those topical situations, I tell them it's gonna be a long haul, you know, maybe a solid year to even a year and a half of use but you should generally know if something's working within the first three to six months. And if it's not, then at least within the topical realm, there are a lot of different options to to try if they're willing to do that. You know, these patients have usually used tea tree oil or Vicks or Listerine or anything they've read on the internet before they've even walked through the door. And I've seen some people get decent results um, with it, but they're usually not long standing. So as soon as they would stop one of these home remedies, they the nail kind of tends to go back. For the oral medication, I have a serious conversation because you know if the patient's on something like a statin, I have I have internal medicine colleagues that have no problem putting the patient on the oral med despite the statin, but I choose not to. It's more of a personal preference for me. I will have them do lab work prior to starting the medication. I always run a metabolic panel and a complete blood count just to make sure there's nothing underlying before starting the medication. I give them two options of ways to take it. So once a day, every day for three months or in pulse dosing where they're taking it once a day, every day for a week. And then they're stopping for three weeks and then it repeats. Usually with the pulse dose, uh, technically because you have less medication in your system over a period of time, you don't need to do repeat lab work. I always run a baseline to start and they tend to stay on the medication longer. uh, Maybe it's six months. But in actuality, that's only six weeks of actually taking medication. So I find that that's a safer way to do it. I've also, you know, something to note: I had a patient who was on anxiety medication, and I truthfully didn't think about Lamisil being related to anxiety. And he had told me he actually had to stop the medication because it did increase his, his anxiety, which I, I found pretty surprising. And when I went back and looked into it further, it is listed as a side effect. It's further down on the list, but it's definitely something to think about uh, because we I do see a lot of patients that are taking you know, anti-anxiety medication. So that was something that once you've learned it, you don't forget it. And so it's definitely something I look for in the history also. That's pretty much my discussion for the mycotic nails. Um, I do have them come in regardless of the treatment every like six weeks to two months to take a look at them and just see the progress and to do any debridement as needed. Most patients that I find really appreciate the discussion of taking the time to give them options and not just going ahead and kind of, you know, giving them a prescription and calling it a day. And if you're ever not sure about, you know, a side effect uh, that a medication can cause, it doesn't hurt to just pick up the phone and call the patient's pharmacy because they have a list of all the patient's medications. You know, sometimes you're not privy to that. Maybe they forgot one when they came and listed that into your office. So um, it's definitely something to not take lightly. You don't want to be the podiatrist who put the patient into liver failure because you put them on oral amicill for you know three months. So I think it's definitely worth taking the time to look into that. It's uh, interesting that you brought up some of the
0: home remedies and your experience with that because we have a, in our January issue on myths in podiatric dermatology. And the author talks a little bit about some of those home remedies and how patients often bring them up in the conversation and how doctors may recommend some of them from time to time. So I'm curious what your experience has been with this as far as how are you managing patient expectations as far as efficacy and you know, how are you approaching those types of remedies in your practice? So the
1: only ones that I've seen work have been the white vinegar and the Vicks. And and both of them have worked because the patient was super consistent with it. What I didn't like about the patients that I've seen who have used the VIX is that the nail plate seems to get very thin. And when you already have a nail that's kind of brittle, and then you put this like ointment on it and it just tends to make it even more thin. I tend to think it it, it hurts the nail in a sense. I haven't seen the patient with using the VIX have it stay uh, resolved, it actually came back. So in my experience, I haven't had luck with those long-term. The white vinegar I've seen work long-term. That's the only one that I've had experience with where I've seen it work and and actually
0: cure it. Are, have those been primarily patients with more superficial, milder cases of onychomycosis, or have you noted some anecdotal cases that are more severe?
1: No, it's definitely cases that are milder, and it's definitely for patients who catch it earlier, you know, as soon as they see it on the nail and they're kind of in the office. Those are the patients that that works for. When you have someone that's, you know, had this distortion of the nail for 10 years and it's gotten progressively worse, I haven't seen it work at all on those patients. And and a lot of times when they come into my office, they've even tried other things such as laser and to be honest, I mean, I don't I don't personally do laser in my office. I do think that there's a purpose for it. And I do think that it works great for patients who, again, it's very early and it's mild and maybe does not affect multiple nails. But for these patients that it does, uh, I don't really think that that's something that's uh, very efficacious. So what
0: about those patients where you take that nail biopsy and there is no evidence of fungal involvement, but it's truly just
1: a dystrophic nail. How do you approach that type of patient? If it's something where it comes back and say there's been evidence of trauma and that's what caused the dystrophy, a lot of times I'll have them bring in a few pairs of shoes and I'll evaluate how the shoe is fitting. Most of the time, the shoe is too tight. And I always recommend about a thumb's width of space between the longest toe, whether it's the hallux or the second digit, and the end of the, the shoe. If they're tighter than that, chances are that's something that is going to aggravate the nail and you know, allow the dystrophy to continue to occur. In patients that maybe have hammer toes, and that's what's causing it, I may just do a trial of a little crest pad Uh, Homemade, you know, crest pad, or I have some pre-mades in in depending on which office I'm in. And I'll say, let's just try this and see if we can take some pressure off of the hammer toe and see if the nail appears better. And I've seen that it does improve specific cases. So those are things that I think as podiatrists, you can keep in mind, you know, look at some other shoe fit, foot deformity, and just see if there are little things that you can change to help make a difference. There are other patients where they say, you know what, I'm totally fine with it and I can just leave it be. And I said that that's totally fine too. You know, you can do that. And if it seems to be worsening or if it seems to be occurring on, you know, other nails come back in, obviously we can even redo the test if that's the case. There are some things on the market such as veil, again, relatively expensive. So patients I will sometimes write a prescription for it. If they get coverage for it, that's great. Uh, and I've seen that work to help kind of specifically work only on dystrophic nails. And um, I, don't, I don't do it particularly in my office, but the CarryFlex nail uh, restoration system, I, I have colleagues that have tried it and they've gotten pretty good results with it but it's a little time consuming and the patient does have to come in, uh, you know, maybe every like six weeks or so, and maybe they don't want that time commitment, but those are some other options that they have. What about other nail pathologies? Are there any
0: other particular diagnoses that you've uh, stumbled upon in your patients where
1: you have any pearls that might be helpful? You know, part of it, I think is taking a good history. There are patients that maybe you can diagnose psoriasis through the nail biopsy that maybe don't have skin involvement just yet. So I think that's something to consider. Another issue you know, that maybe you come across is patients will present with like a stripe in the nail um, you know, from the melanin pigmentation. And this is something to, you know, always take the extra second to look at it because you wanna make sure you don't have that extension into the proximal nail fold or, you know, a very wide band that could be potentially a melanoma. You don't wanna miss those things. Um, I've been fortunate enough where I haven't had to, to have any of those patients but we've had had them in our practice as a whole. And fortunately it was because, you know, the the podiatrist took the time to go ahead and say, you know what, that doesn't look right. It's not just a regular pigment stripe and let's go ahead, take a biopsy. And then ultimately they were referred out for treatment and you know, they've been very, very gracious that it was because of the podiatrist seeing that change that ultimately saved their life. Um, you know, they ended up losing the toe, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, they they could have could have been fatal. So those are things to definitely take a look at. In darker skinned patients, they tend to have darker nails, and they will have more of a melanin pigmentation whether it's the entire nail plate, or if it's just these actual stripes that you'll see, and they may be on multiple nails. And again, they may even be on their, their fingernails. So definitely worth the time to take a second look at those. You shared some really
0: important points with us today, and we're really grateful that you took the time to spend with us on our podcast episode. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in today as well. Make sure to check us out on podiatrytoday.com and future and previous episodes on your favorite podcast platform, including Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and more.